0: it is good to see you this morning on our last weekend of summer school starting back this week hard to believe isn't it i do want to mention wednesday night we're taking we're pausing our normal wednesday night bible study and we're having a prayer meeting wednesday night i hope you'll come back for so we began the day this morning there's a group of us who pray at 8 a.m on sunday mornings any of you are welcome to join us and this morning was just such a sweet time as we met with the Lord because we were praying over the kids of the church. We were praying for our teachers from this church who serve in the community. We were praying for the schools. It was just a neat time of meeting with the Lord. That's what we're going to do on Wednesday night. And so we just want to invite you to come back. We're going to pray for the schools in the area. We're going to pray for our kids. We're actually bring our kids in here and lay hands on them and pray over them Wednesday night. We're going to pray for the teachers in our church and other teachers we know. It's just a chance for us to cover the start of the new school year with prayer. And so I just want to invite you back Wednesday night at 6 o'clock in this room. I hope you'll join us for that. we we'll are continue our journey through the gospel of John. We're picking up where we left off last week in John chapter 8. So if you want to be finding that, we'll be in John chapter 8 this morning. As we begin, I want to ask you the question. Think back to your childhood. Did you ever get asked, and it may or may not have happened to you, but were you ever asked, to whom do you belong? And then you say, oh well, uh, you know, I'm, I'm the son of Grady and Jane Smith. Ah, I see it. Your face looks just like your mom. Yeah, I don't know if you ever got those type things as a kid where people could see the family resemblance and they're like, ah, yep, yeah, you look like your parents. Or perhaps you go visit someone who's just had a baby and you're looking and you're like, oh, I can see the resemblance. He looks just like you. And you often hear these comments because there's a family resemblance. Now that I have kids, it's really humbling and sobering because I'll look at my boys and I'll see them do something and be like, oh no, that's exactly what I did when I was young. And it's like, I see those same sin patterns in my life manifest in their lives. And I'm like, oh, Lord, we need a lot of grace in this situation right now. Why is that? Why is there the same patterns of behavior? Why do the facial expressions look the same? Why? Because there's a family lineage there. There's something that is picked up in that. And so today we're coming to a place where there's a spiritual parallel to that, to where everyone on the earth comes down in one of two lines, basically. And everyone on the earth is going to reflect which line they are part of. It's a place of belonging, a place of identity. Ultimately, who do we follow to what family, if you will, do we belong? As we see this in John chapter 8 this morning, I want to remind us that there's no break from where we left off last week. I'll stop this in the middle of a conversation. So those seven days have passed for us. This is literally just moments after what Jesus was saying that we looked at last Sunday. So try to get your mind back to what we talked about seven days ago. And Jesus last Sunday we saw gave a very, very serious warning... He told the people, I am going away, and where I'm going, you cannot come. He's saying, I'm returning to heaven, and you will never be there with me. he actually says, you will die in your sins. It was a really heavy text on that. And we saw in the text last week that some people, at least, appear to believe. And it's easy to get excited about that, but we saw last week that wasn't a true belief. That wasn't a saving belief. They wanted to avoid the consequence of sin, but they really did not want to follow Jesus. And we saw last week in John 8 that true belief is evidence, is seen by staying in God's Word and by having it deliver us from the power of sin. That if we really do believe, it's not just we don't want to go to hell. If we really do believe, we fall in love with Jesus. We fall in love with His Word and all His Word represents. And it changes us. It transforms us. And we'll pick back up in John 8 and that kind of very serious conversation Jesus is having with these people. With that said, friends, this is a heavy text this morning that we come to. This is not your feel-good text that we like to run to on this one. And so I just say that because this is not one that, if I was preaching topically, that I'd get up in the morning and be like, man, I really want to go preach this part of John 8 today. Because it's not one that we go to that makes us feel really good about ourselves. It's very, it's very sobering, very full of warnings here for us in that. But friends, that's why we preach through books of the Bible. Because if we preach through books of the Bible, it makes us come face-to-face with stuff that makes us feel good, And it makes us come face-to-face with stuff that's pretty heavy and weighty and can be hard to think through. And I pray that as we look at this heavy text this morning, the Holy Spirit will so work in our hearts that we fall in love with God's mercy and need for what He's done for us, as well as I pray He'll give us a new burden for those around us who do not know Jesus. And so as we look look at John 8 this morning, we're starting in verse 38. I want you to be listening. What are the only two possibilities? Again, these family lines, who do you belong to? There's only two, two places we can belong, only two identities that we can really have here. And what are those two? So be looking for that as we read. If I could ask you to stand, please, in honor of the reading of the Word of God. We're going to start in John chapter 8. we start in verse 38. We'll read through 47 this morning. I'm reading from the ESV translation. John chapter 8, verse 38. Jesus is speaking. I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. They answered him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing what Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You are doing what your father did. They said to him, We were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me, for I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil." Father, I thank you for your word, your inspired, infallible, and errant word of God. And Father, we're thankful that all of your word is God-breathed and is profitable for teaching, for correction, for rebuke, for training in righteousness. And Father, I pray this day you would take this heavy text for us and you would use it to make us more like you desire us to be. I pray you'd let us marvel at your mercy today and I pray you burden our hearts afresh for those around us who do not know you this morning. Would you have your way through your word and I pray your Holy Spirit would make your word come alive in each of our hearts and we ask it. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. You may be seated. So there's one main idea I want you to see from this text this morning. As we look at this part of John chapter 8, as Jesus continues this conversation, simply this, unless someone has been changed by Jesus, that person is being led by Satan, no matter how religious they think they are. Again, unless someone has been changed by Jesus, that person is being led by Satan, no matter how religious they think they are. Remember where we left off last week? This is a conversation with a group that thinks they're religious. Their confidence is in their religious heritage. But we saw last week their lives had not been changed. We saw last week they were still slaves to sin and their hearts were far from Jesus. And he makes it very clear today it's because they're being led by Satan even though they are very religious. So unless someone has been changed by Jesus, that person is being led by Satan no matter how religious they think they are. So let's kind of take that and think through those ideas from the text this morning. First of all, let's start with the idea of how, how religious these people think they are, because that's the context we're looking at. So look at verses 38 and 39. Jesus is speaking to this Jewish crowd and says, I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. And they answer him, Abraham is our father. And we'll just pause right there. So notice Jesus begins here the conversation with a contrast of his life, his father, ...and their life and who they serve. And when he shows them a contrast... ...that basically we're not following the same God here... ...their response is not to fall on their knees and believe... ...and say, Jesus, show us who God is. There's no repentance here in this. When Jesus tells them, my father and your father... ...are two totally, two totally different people... ...what is their response? Verse 39, they assert Abraham as our father. They're basically saying, listen, I'm okay. You say I'm not okay. You say we're serving different gods. But guess what? I'm okay because of my religious heritage... ...because of my tradition... But Jesus doesn't let them get away with that. We'll see in a minute, he corrects them and shows them that they're not at all believing in the way that Abraham believed. But after he corrects them, again, they still don't respond. There's no belief in their heart. When Jesus says, no, you're not following God here, they don't respond. Look at what they do in verse 41 here. He says to them very bluntly, you are doing what your father did. In their response, they said to him, we were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. They're asserting that they are true children of God. They really follow God. They're saying we're not falling away. What's this? We're not born of sexual immorality. Think through the Old Testament. Often to convey people falling away from God, the imagery of adultery was used to convey that idea of forsaking God and turning away from God. When they say this, that we're not born of sexual immorality, they're saying we haven't turned away from God. God, the one true father, is our God too. Friends, this group thinks they are following God when in reality they're not. This group thinks they are okay with God, and in reality, they do not even know Him. And before we just think this is something in past history, human nature hasn't changed. People still do this today. As we talk to people about the gospel of Jesus Christ, I'll often hear people say, Grady, I'm okay. I'm really okay. And their response is not much different than this. Why do they think they're okay? Well... I joined a church when I was a kid. Yeah, I haven't walked through the doors in 20 years, but, you know, I'm okay because I have a church membership. I'm okay because in Vacation Bible School, I raised my hand and I prayed a prayer, and so I'm okay. Or I hear a lot of times, you know, well, I'm okay because I'm a moral person. Look at all the awful stuff happening in the world today. And I don't do any of that. I'm a pretty good person. So they're putting their confidence, not in what God has done, they're putting their confidence in thinking that they are okay. And so then and now, there's many people who are religious people who are even church members, but yet are, their hearts are far, far from God. And that's evidence in the fact their lives have not been changed by Jesus. So unless someone has been changed by Jesus, that person is being led by Satan, no matter how religious they think they are. So I'm going see this group that Jesus addresses here, how their lives have not been changed. This is fascinating to look at what Jesus indicates about where they are. And as we look, there's three things that have not changed in their life in this text. When you we go through and see what Jesus is confronting them with, you see three evidences, three aspects of their life where they have not been changed, where they really are not following. And think back to the whole message of the book of John. True belief changes us. True belief is receiving a radical transformation from above. True belief is not just intellectual. True belief changes us. And look at what Jesus points out in their life. Three things that have not been changed. First thing that's not changed is their behavior. Their behavior is no different. Look at verses 39 through 41. They answered him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing what Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You are doing what your father did. Jesus just told them in the few moments before we saw last week that they're slaves to sin. When you look at their lives, there is no evidence of holiness, no evidence of righteousness, no evidence of following God. They are slaves. They are bound to their sin. And one area he highlights here is their heart's desire to kill Jesus. He says, you seek to kill me. They're so evil, their hearts and their behavior are so wrong in God's standards, they're ready to kill Jesus. Their behavior has not been changed. But why has their behavior not been changed? Number two, their behavior has not been changed because their heart affections, their heart desires have not been changed. Their heart desires have not been changed. Look at verse 42. There's no transformation of their desires. Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me, for I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Their heart's desires have not changed. They do not love Jesus. There's no longing for God in this. There's two things Jesus points out here about what they should love. They should love his incarnation here. It says here, I came from God. In the Greek, that's past tense. He has already come. That is the incarnation. This is what we celebrate at Christmas. He was born of a virgin. He was born miraculously here. And he came of a baby. God took on human flesh. They should love that. That should fill their hearts with hope and awe and wonder that God came amongst them and amongst people but they also learn to love his ongoing presence. He says, I am here, in verse 42. That's the ongoing tense. I am continually with you. And friends, when we think of Jesus, we think not only that he came and we celebrate the nice little nativity scene at Christmas, but we celebrate he's Emmanuel. He is God with us. He is God with his people. But this group doesn't believe that. This group doesn't love Jesus, for he is their heart affections are not changed. So you look, should there be change if you follow Jesus? Yes, but there's no change in their behavior because there's no change in their heart. And the reason why there's no change in their heart, that's number three, there's no change in their beliefs. Look at verse 43. There's no change in their beliefs, their worldview, their understanding of who God is. Verse 43, why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. Friends, these people were so ingrained in their wrong beliefs about God and Jesus. They were so ingrained in their presuppositions of how God works in their religious heritage and tradition that they refused to change their beliefs. They were face-to-face with the Messiah himself. They are looking at God in human flesh just a few feet in front of them, and they are so ingrained in a wrong understanding of God that when God is literally standing there before them speaking to them, they will not believe. Therefore, they do not love. Therefore, there's no change in their actions, and they refuse to follow him. This whole thing is summarized in verses 45 to 47 of their spiritual state. Jesus says in verse 45, But because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? I tell the truth. Why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. And it doesn't get any more sobering than that. To hear Jesus looking at a person and saying, You are not really of God. Again, this is a religious group, and he's saying, You really do not know the one true God. He's telling them they're lost, they are slaves to sin. And why is that the case? Verse 45, and there's a word that I've missed in years of looking at this, but it's such a big difference here. Verse 45, it says, but because I tell the truth, you do not believe. I think it's easy when we read that to substitute the word although instead of because. Although I tell you the truth, you do not believe. But it doesn't say that. He doesn't say, although I tell the truth, you don't believe. I speak truth, you don't. He says, because I tell the truth, the reason why you don't believe is because I speak truth. You reject in your heart truth. Because I tell the truth, you refuse truth belief. Why? We saw it weeks ago in John 3, 19. People love darkness rather than the light. And so there's no radical transformation from above. There's no change in their beliefs about God and who God is. Therefore, there's no change in their heart, affections, and love for Jesus. And when there's no love for Jesus, there's no transformation in how they live and in their outward actions. Friends, this is not the only place Jesus has taught very hard, strong things like this I want you to look at Matthew chapter 7 for just a moment. We'll have it on the screen for you. Because Jesus tells something very similar that, again, is very sobering. So it's not isolated in John. In Matthew chapter 7, verse 15, Jesus is speaking and says this, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. Now let me just stop there for a minute. He's warning about false prophets. People who outwardly are going to appear very religious, who are going to appear to be leaders even in the church, they put on a good facade and they act really religiously saying, Beware of them... Because they're false, they're not true. though outwardly, they look true, they're not true on the inside. Verse 16, how do you know? You will recognize them by their fruits, by their outward actions. What do you see? You'll recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruits. Verse 21, again, these are some of the scariest verses, I think, in all of Scripture. Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Verse 22, On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, and cast out demons in your name, and do many mighty works in your name? And then verse 23, And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Friends, there are many, many, many religious people then and now who don't know God. They put on a good outside facade. In their hearts, they may even be so deceived. They think they're following God like this group does here and what we're seeing in John 8, but they don't. And when they stand before the judgment, God will say, depart from me. It goes back to what we saw earlier in John. He doesn't believe they're believing because there's been no change. There's been no radical transformation from above. Belief changes us and there's no change in their lives and their affections and their beliefs and their desires and how they live. But friends, it doesn't stop there. Back in, go back to John chapter 8. Jesus takes it one step further, and it makes it even more sobering and scary if it's, if it's not heavy enough already, right? He takes it one step further in showing what's really going on in these people's hearts and lies, And that's what we said, our main idea is, unless someone has been changed by Jesus, that person is being led by Satan. He alludes to this at the beginning of John chapter 8, verse 38, that we started with this morning. He said, I speak of what I have seen with my father... And you do what you have heard from your father. You do. A continuous tense here. You do and you keep on doing and you keep on doing. Your life is marked by doing what you do because you're following in all you do, your father. Your identity is not of God. It's of someone very, very different. Verse 41, he kind of says the same thing again. You are doing what your father did. This is the family line. They're acting like that whom do they belong, like we mentioned at the beginning. Why do our kids do things that they do? Well, they often have picked it up on us from us. Why do they look like us a lot of times? Because, well, they're, they're from us. And he's saying here to them, you simply are living like you're living in unbelief with no change, with heart far from me, because you're just doing what your father did. And who's their father? Well, he gets to it in verse 44 here. Long verse, he says, you are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires, your will, the core of your being, deep down in your heart, though you don't even know it because you're so religious on the outside. At the core of your heart, he's saying, your heart is to follow the adversary, the enemy, the devil, Satan, whatever name you want to call him by. And you, therefore, you do what you do. You carry out those actions. And for instance, that shouldn't surprise us because if we're slaves to sin, if we're far from God, this would be the other place we would be. But again, don't miss it here. This group thinks they're following God. They think they're following God. They think they're religious. They think they are, really know the one true father. They've just asserted that. They think they're Abraham's descendants. And yet Jesus is saying, you're not following God. You're following Satan. And again, there's few today who would say that. I mean, there's not many people you would go to and say, hey, do you believe in God? Oh, no, no, I, I'm a Satan worshiper. Yeah, I mean, they're out there, but that's not the, the typical person you're going to encounter on the street. And we might ask most people, hey, do you follow God? Oh, yeah, yeah I'm a member of whatever church oh yeah, I went to church when I was a kid, I'm okay. We kind of assert those same things. There's very few who are going to assert, oh yeah, I'm a Satan follower, just like this group wouldn't do that. But in the core, if they are not following Jesus and believing in Jesus the way Jesus lays out belief in their core, that is who they are following, even if they don't realize that. Who is this Satan who they are enslaved to? We could do a whole sermon series on that, right? So like I say a lot of times, we'll get to that one day. So we'll we'll do a whole sermon series on spiritual warfare and how that impacts the Christian life on this. But let me just say this for this morning. Friends, too often we talk about Satan, demons, the devil, spiritual warfare. We have this kind of cartoonish mindset in our heads from the old Saturday morning cartoons of some little red guy with a pitchfork in his hand, and we all kind of laugh about it. And the reality is, that the enemy has got us pretty deceived, where we really don't even f- remember there is a very real enemy out to destroy us. We forget there's a very real spiritual being who hates God, who was the greatest of the angels, who fell from heaven, led a rebellion against God in heaven, and has been cast down into hell, but is still roaming the earth trying to destroy people trying to destroy the church, trying to destroy God's people... who still hates God and still hates God being worshipped... To we'll do all he can to divide churches, to we'll do all he can to divide marriages, to we'll do all he can to enslave people into sin. This is not some little red guy with a pitchfork. There's a very, very real spiritual being seeking to destroy what God is doing... and seeking to destroy us in the process. And there's much we could say about that, but the text highlights two aspects... of who this spiritual being, Satan, the devil, really is. Look at verse 44. Jesus says, "'You are of your father the devil and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and has nothing to do with the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. There's two things that are highlighted here. Again, maybe one day we can do a whole study of this. But he's a murderer from the beginning. Think back to the Garden of Eden. When Satan first deceived Adam and Eve, he brought death to the world. Death came through what they did through their sin, and death enters the world. He murdered them, not instantaneously, but brought death into the world. And soon after that, one of their sons turns on the other son, and you have the first murder on the planet Earth because of the murder, because of the evil, the sin that Satan has brought into the world. Friends, he didn't stop doing that then. The scripture is very clear in John 10.10 10, that he comes to steal, to kill, and to destroy. Satan is still in the business of trying to steal, kill, and destroy. First Peter 5.8 tells us he's like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. So he still murders he also still lies. Here it says in the text it couldn't be clearer. There's no truth in him. He's a lies, he's a liar. He's the father of lies. And he speaks out of his own character. He does what is in his heart and his nature is just an overflow in his actions. Which is what he did from the very beginning, wasn't it? He tempts Adam and Eve in the garden. And he looks at them and says, Did God really say? And then he almost had a picture it laughing at, at them, that's not true. God's lying to you, you will not die. The very first thing he says to Adam and Eve is basically, you will not die. God is a liar. He lies to them. They believe sin comes into God's creation. Again, he still does that today. 2 Corinthians 4.4 talks about how he blinds the minds of unbelievers to keep them from the knowledge of the truth. He's still lying to people today, still whispering into people's ear, casting doubt, casting unbelief into them, getting them following all these other idols of the world so they do not know the one true God. And what's so sober is this group that is claiming Abraham as their father, God, or Abraham is the one they're coming from, and God the Father is their untrue father, is the one who are really enslaved to the the murderer and liar. They're really enslaved to the enemy and following him. So everyone in the world, then and now, is in one of two groups. Either we believe in the one true God, the God of truth, the God of light, the God of hope, we believe in Jesus, or we believe in are being led by the devil, by Satan, who is the murderer and the liar, and much more could be said about that. Friends, unless someone has been changed by Jesus, that person is being led. They are following Satan, whether they know it or not. So, friends, where's the hope in all that? It's pretty heavy. It's pretty, it's pretty sad and pretty sobering for us. But where's the hope in all this? The hope is we don't have to stay following the enemy for life because of the gospel. We're not bound to be led and deceived by Satan all of our life because God in His infinite mercy reaches down and grabs us and adopts us into His family. He changes us. He changes our belief. He changes our affections. He changes our behavior as well of that. He transfers us from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. And I want us to hear what God does. First John, First John chapter 5, written also by John here, is a beautiful picture of the transformation that happens when God takes us from the kingdom of darkness, from being enslaved to sin, from being bound up in darkness from following the enemy whether we know it or not to being brought to the kingdom of light being brought to be children of god to being adopted into god's family first john chapter 5 verse 1 shows us the hope in all this first john 5 1 everyone who believes that jesus is the christ has been born of god and everyone who loves the father loves whoever has been born of him so let me just stop right there friends we are born in this world sinners We don't become sinners because we sin. We sin because we're born sinners. At the core of our being, we are born sinful. Friends, that's why if you have kids, you don't have to teach your kids how to do wrong. I can assure you there's probably no one in this room who's like, man, my kid is too holy. They're going to get beat up in school. How do I help them learn how to lie? That's not what we're having to do. We come out of the womb with a sin nature. Therefore, we sin because we are born sinners. We are enslaved to darkness, but God in His mercy rescues us. Chapter 5, verse 1, whoever believes that Jesus Christ has been born of God, we can be taken from being in bondage to the enemy and Him being our Father So, because of what Christ has done, we can now belong to God and be His children now instead. Verse 2, by this we know that we love the children of God, when we love God and obey His commandments. Again, friends, belief changes us. If we've truly been believed, if we believe in such a way that is saving faith, we don't stay slaves to our sin. God rescues us when we love God and obey His commandments. Verse 3, for this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments. His commandments are not burdensome. There's the heart affections in that, friends. If we truly believe in Jesus, we don't look at His commands as burdens. There's joy in this because we're His children. We want to follow Him. Verse 4, for everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? So, friends, what is the hope? We don't have to stay slaves to the enemy. We don't have to stay slaves to to sin. God has rescued us, God has adopted us, and God is our Father if we are in Christ. Now, as we think about this text, there are several things I want to ask you for consideration for application to your life. The obvious first question to this is, what does your life show? What does your life show? When you look at your beliefs, when you look at your heart affections, when you look at your behavior, outward actions, what does your life show? Who are you following? Who is your father? Is the fruit of your life anger and immorality and selfishness and lust and dishonesty and strife and conflict and on and on? You get the picture. Or is the fruit of your life love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, children, and self-control? Is the fruit of your life love for God and love for others? Contentment, patience in the trials. What is the fruit? What is the evidence of your life? What do you see? What do others around you see? Not that our works save us, but, our, but the works show what's happening inside our heart. What is the fruit, the evidence of your life of who you are following? And friends, if any of you are looking at your life and you're thinking, there's no evidence I've truly believed. That's again, I'm not asking how religious you are, but there's no true evidence that you've really believed. The promise of God's word in Romans 10 is everyone who calls on the name of the Lord can be saved. If you look at your life and you're under conviction that, my, that the fruit of my life is I am far from God, Romans 10 invites you to call out to him and he will rescue, he'll save you, he'll adopt you and bring you into his family so you no longer have Satan as your father but you have God as your father. For a lot of you, I see the fruit of your life as your pastor. I get the joy of seeing what God is doing in so many of your lives. And so my first point of application is kind of expected. If you see it, give God the praise. It's his work, not ours, okay? Now that's kind of the one we say week after week, but it's true If there's change in our life, it's because God has brought us salvation. God is the one who has adopted us. God has done the work. Therefore, we are thankful, and we we worship in response. But there's three more things I want us as believers to think about in in light of this text. first one is this. None of us us are sinless. We all have sin in our life. 1 John is very clear about that. So there's always going to be some works in our life that are not what we need to be. Like I've said before, there's a gap between who we know, who we're supposed to be in Christ, who we are in Christ, and where we are now. So the question is what do we do about that gap? The reality is, friends, if you go back to the kind of think of the imagery of a fruit tree, you'll know them by their fruits. You know, if I'm driving down towards Disney and you see all the orange grows, I don't have to try to persuade my boys that those are apple trees. I mean, they can't get that past them. They know they're orange trees, they see the oranges on them. And so if you look at your life and you see some fruit growing that is inconsistent with who you are supposed to be in Christ, the reality is most of us just try to chop that piece of fruit off. There's an apple on the tree and it's supposed to be an orange tree, so we cut the apple off and then a few years later the apple grows back. where did that come from? So we chop it off again. We chop it off again. We get kind of drastic trying to cut off, but nothing really ever changes. Why? Because we're not tackling heart affections and worldview and belief behind it. So with this text and looking at how these people were not changed and seeing they were not changed in their heart, they were not changed in their beliefs, I think it points us as believers to a pattern of sanctification. When we see areas of sin in our life, friends, our job is not moralism to chop that sin off. Our job is to go look at our heart affections out of which that sin took root and look at our beliefs about who Jesus is that caused that that were wrong, that caused that sin to be able to take root in the first place and attack tackle it at the root level. So my encouragement to you in sanctification is don't just focus on your behavior. Focus on your heart. Because change has to happen in your heart and your worldview and all those things out of which then the other change happens. And that's a whole other sermon for a whole other day, but I believe it's applicable here. The second thing that I think we need to re- be reminded of from this text, friends, is there's a very real spiritual battle going on around us. I think it's incredibly easy for us as believers to lose sight of that. To lose sight of the fact there's a very real enemy, a very real being Satan who has very real demons following him who are seeking to destroy, seeking to divide, seeking to tempt you. And we lose sight of all that. He's very real. And are we aware of that reality? Not aware to be fearful. As you've heard me talk a little bit about spiritual warfare before, we have a misunderstanding. And as much I like Star Wars, I think sometimes we see spiritual warfare like Star Wars... Here's God, here's Satan, who's going to win? Oh my goodness, I'm not sure. That's not what the Bible shows. Satan is a defeated foe. We talked about this last Wednesday night in our study of the attributes of God and God's power. Satan can't stop God. God is more powerful. There's no question about that. And if you're not sure about that, go listen to Wednesday night's teaching. It's online and you can get a little bit more about that. So we don't live in fear of Satan because God is bigger, but we're aware that he is trying to tempt us on that. And so my question for us is, are we living like we're in a spiritual battle? If we were in a war right now, our lives would be different friends. Our priorities would be different, our lives would be different. But are we doing that now? How about our prayer life? Are we praying like there's an enemy trying to destroy us, destroy our kids, destroy our friends and destroy our church? Are we praying like that? Or are we using in the words of John Piper, are we using prayers like a walk or using prayers like a domestic intercom for convenience? Are we seeing prayers a walkie-talkie to stay in touch with the commander in the midst of the battles that we're in? So I just encourage you in light of this text to remember there's a real enemy and to look at your life and are we living like we are in the middle of a battle right now. But then lastly, I think we must ask ourselves about the question of evangelism, sharing the hope of Jesus with others. Friends, do we really believe that God's word is true when it says that if you're not being changed by Jesus, you're following Satan? Do we really believe that? Because if we really believe that, that will change how we pray for those around us who don't know Jesus. That'll change how we talk about Jesus with them. That'll change our burden for them. And so, friends, do we really believe that those around us who are not being transformed by Jesus are really being led by the enemy? And if so, I pray that will motivate us to pray harder for them and share more with them. Like we saw last week, we can't scare them into belief, but we can hold Jesus high before them and let them see the greatness of Jesus and pray that God will open their eyes to see who he really is, that they might find the joy that we have in walking with him. Would you pray with me? Father, I thank you for your word. God, I'm thankful that you show us who you are and what it means to follow you. Father, I thank you that you don't leave us wondering those things. And Father, I pray that you would help myself and these precious brothers and sisters have even deeper understandings of what true belief looks like. Father, I pray you would forgive us for the times we make belief into something, just some trivial passing thing, when in reality belief changes us. God, I pray you'd be changing me, you'd be changing these brothers and sisters at the core of our heart affections. God, increasing our love for you, increasing our just awe and wonder of you. Would you be increasing our faith in you and seeing you move, increasing our trust in you? And I pray out of that, God, we'd be able to walk in holiness. Not just striving for morality, for morality's sake, but God, we'd be able to walk in holiness because we believe in you and because we love you so much. God, we can't manufacture that. That is a gift of your grace and we ask that you pour out your grace on us that we might have those desires for the things of you. Father, I pray as well this week that you make us mindful or there's a, real, a very real enemy seeking to destroy us. And Lord, I'm especially thinking of our children and our teenagers and our college students as they start back to school over the next week. God, I pray you get into their minds the truth that when they're faced with temptation, when they're faced with doubts and stuff, that there's a very real spiritual battle going on. That there's an enemy going after their souls and going after them. And God, I pray you would make them ever vigilant, ever aware of the battle that they are in. That they might look to you as their strength, look to you for their salvation, and look to you that they might walk in holiness before you and make you known to a lost and dying world so in need of hope all around us. And Father, I pray for all of us as well, God, that you would burden our hearts for the the multitude of lost around us. Father, all over this city are thousands and thousands and thousands of people right now who have no hope thousands of people who are slaves to their sin because ultimately they're following Satan, that Satan is their father, even though they don't know that. Now, you've sovereignly put us in their path? God, it may be one of our neighbors, it may be someone sitting at the next desk in the classroom at school, maybe someone meeting in a checkout line at Walmart, it may be a family member, maybe a close friend. Lord, you know who they are. Would you this week open our eyes and let us see people the way you see people? Would you give us discernment to know Who needs the gospel brought into their life? And may you give us boldness to build those relationships and share the hope of Christ with those all around us. And Lord, Lord, in this, as we pray for our own self and our own holiness, our own love for you, as we pray for our kids, as we pray for those around us who need the gospel, Lord, ultimately our prayer is, Lord, let your kingdom come. Your will be done. Lord, we want the gospel to so rock our lives and rock this church and rock this city, that, Lord, revival will come throughout this place. And God, we can't manufacture that through any means. That is simply your grace and your moving. And so we plead with you and ask you to transform us and transform this city that it be a place for your glory and your kingdom. And we ask it in Jesus' name. And then would you stand and sing our closing song?